The uh, text for preaching we've already just read, Matthew chapter 28, very familiar, Great Commission. I want to, uh, and have planned on starting the book of John, the Gospel of John, and that's my plan still in a few weeks. Well, some of us have been talking a lot about, um, especially about the supper and uh, communion and the way we celebrate it. And um, several years back, I did a small um, sort of teaching series about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I thought I would just revisit that. I'm, I'm quite certain that probably none of you would be able to um, quote back to me the things I said two years ago. So it would probably be all right for us to revisit it because I had to look back at it myself. And uh, actually, sort of going in a totally different direction because I want to start today by talking about uh, exactly what baptism and Lord's Supper is, and it's known to us as a means of grace. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. We don't use it a lot, especially in Baptist churches. But it is a means of grace. And that's defined this way. Any activity within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. And I love that. You know, there's a place in the Bible that says simply, He gives more grace. So we don't just get saved and that's the end of it. God continues to shower us with grace and pour out grace upon us. And the greatest way He does that, and possibly, well, I'm not going to say the only way, God does what He wants to, but I believe the way He blesses us and gives us grace is through the church. So, you know, we don't come to church, we gather with the church we are the church and when we do this god has set up means to bless us that's why it's so detrimental that as a believer we do what we're doing this morning it's not just to um, make me feel good that hey a lot of people come that's awesome no it's actually nothing to do with me it's about christ and his church and we gather that god may pour his grace out so in other words the means of grace are physical means that God uses to grow us spiritually. And really, all through Scriptures, God does that. Physical means that God uses to grow us spiritually. Now, some people have a very extensive list of what the means of grace are, the way that God pours grace into us and grows us. Some people include prayer in this list, worship, giving, church discipline, fellowship, evangelism, the use of spiritual gifts, giving, and certainly all those would apply. And you could probably find some more. Okay, there's lots of ways that God sustains us and grows us and blesses us as the church. And the great thing is, these are all things we do together. And I'll come back to that, but I really believe that that's the way God blesses us, by the way, is together. And I believe it's important that we talk about Christian growth in the context of being together. Because so much emphasis in the last 75, 100 years is on personal Christianity and personal growth. We have seminars and books about how you can grow as a Christian at home by yourself. But is that what the Bible teaches? I'm not sure it really does. Now, 
for most of church history, the Christian's faith would never be discussed in isolation from the church gathering. Never. We have so emphasized things such as quiet times and personal devotions and personal growth and, as I mentioned, conferences and Bible studies and book studies that people just get together and do. And in the process, unfortunately, we separated the idea of Christian spiritual growth from the local body of believers. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not, as your pastor, saying don't, don't go home and read your Bibles anymore and don't study the Bible. Those are good things. Meeting with your family or friends and studying, those are good things. But what I do believe that the Bible teaches and what this idea of the means of grace teaches us is that the way that God is going to most grow you and transform you is through the local body of the church. I mean, the whole Bible is written to the church, okay? Everything in it is written to the church. So, I believe when you look at the Bible, you'll discover that from the beginning, the Christian life is to be lived out together. That's what we do. And the means that God has given for your growth come through the local church. And specifically in the Reformed tradition, we believe that the best Christian growth and maturity come through what has been called the ordinary means of grace. So all these means of grace have been reduced down specifically, and we sort of get this from the Westminster Confession of Faith, but I think our Baptist tradition teaches the same thing. So we, we refine these down to here's, here's the basic thing you've got to do if you're going to be a church. And you're going to gather as a fellowship of believers, and you're going to grow spiritually. The ordinary means of grace, which is the Word of God taught in baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you don't have those, you don't have a church. Now, obviously, it, when you say the Word of God, that would include um, it being taught properly by men who have been biblically um, set aside to teach. But these are the ordinary means of grace. I don't think I have to define this for you, but I will. Ordinary means common and basic. Just simple. So in other words, to be a Christian and to be informed as a Christian and to have proper Christian worship, then you need to find a church that week in and week out teaches the Word of God by God-ordained, biblically qualified men that teach to a gathered body just like this and baptizes converts and then regularly partakes in the supper, the Lord's Supper. Then you have church. And then you have the ordinary means of grace. And then you, as a believer, can grow. Look, I've missed this most of my life. This is where the greatest discipleship happens. When men of God stand up and teach the Word of God. And we, by the means of grace, God pours into us through the teaching of the Word. It's not because the man up here happens to be a great teacher or a bad teacher. It's whether we're faithfully proclaiming what God has said and taking the time to try to Pull that out and make sense of it. And God pours His grace out in the process and teaches us and grows us together. And then when we baptize, because there God pours out His blessing of grace upon those who believe and have, are being baptized and all of us who stand around and worship and praise God because another one's been brought into the kingdom, right? And we applaud and we're 
thankful. And God pours out His grace in the teaching of the Word. He pours out His grace in the baptism of believers on those being baptized and those of us watching and participating, which again is why baptism is not done out in the creek with just you and the preacher. It's a church thing. It's a means of grace. We all get together. And I've, I don't know about you, but I've missed that often. Now, it's not, I, I expect God to do something through the teaching of His Word, but I don't expect God to do something through baptism, but it's a means of grace. It's a time for me to be fed and nourished spiritually. And it's okay to rejoice at that. That's why we try to, when we have baptism, we get together and we eat and we fellowship, because I want it to be a time of, the more I understand this, it's a time for God to pour His grace into His people. And we grow from that. And we're thankful for what God is doing. And then the supper, the same way. And I, I don't want to steal everything I want to say possibly next week about that. But there again, in my mind, in my context of doing it once a quarter or twice a year when I was growing up, it was never taught to me that this is a time where God is about to pour His grace out on you and bless you, right? It was more of a time of reflection and have I done good things enough that I can partake of this? And of course, we're going to find out the answer is no. None of you have done anything good enough to partake of this. That's why we're here. You've been invited by the Lord to the table because you're a sinner and He's a Savior. So come and eat and drink. Eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. Why? Because you don't deserve it. But He's made it that you can come. And you know, again, in my mind, and, and, and we'll talk about this a little more, I've always just thought the supper was a time of reflection and a time of repentance and all these things not a time where we're receiving something from god but we are that's what the that's what the body and the blood represent the sustenance of salvation god pouring himself into his church and blessing us man i hope that makes a difference i hope it'll make a difference today in a few minutes when we pass out the bread I want you to expect, just as you expect right now, I hope you do, that God's going to teach me a little something right here. I'm going to learn as a believer. I hope that when we take the supper in a few minutes, at that moment you're expecting to. I don't know what, but God, God's just going to teach me something. Pour out grace in me and on me. Because this is obedience. When, when we read in Matthew 28, teaching them all things to observe all things. Hey, we are observing the Lord's Supper. So I'm teaching you to observe it. And I want you to observe it and trust that God is going to bless you through it. That's what I think we miss a lot. The reason I picked this text, it becomes so mundane. And we say, oh, that's a great commission. I know, we're supposed to make disciples. Yeah, of all nations. But notice, baptizing them. And this is kind of where this ordinary means of grace comes from. What, how do you sum up Matthew 28, 18 through 20? You teach the word, you baptize believers, and you observe what he has commanded. And one of the greatest things he's commanded is the Lord's Supper. Now he's commanded a lot of other things, which again is why we can have a bigger, a bigger list of what means of grace are. But at the basic, the teaching of the word, the, bapti the baptizing of believers, and the observance of the supper. And that's what Jesus said, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. If you're doing this, and that's one reason we celebrate every week. Now, that doesn't make us more spiritual than other people. It doesn't make the people that do it wrong. But if you, if you look at it and Jesus says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, we probably should do it more often than not often. 
And plus, we ought to do it. I, I feel like if it's a means of grace, we can't baptize somebody every week. That would be nice. But we can teach the word every week and we can observe the supper every week. So let's do it. It's a means of grace. And if you think about it in these terms, the great commission of Jesus is pretty ordinary. Make disciples, baptize them, the converts, make disciples out of them and teach them to observe what Jesus commanded. The word, the baptism, and the supper. I came across this article uh, listening to various things over the last several weeks written by a man named Michael Brown. And it's entitled Ordinary Means. And I'm going to read some of it to you because it's just really helped open my eyes to see, I think, what the Scripture is teaching. Listen to what he says. Nowadays, ordinary is a bad word. In a culture that is constantly looking for the next big thing, who wants what's ordinary? We want the spectacular. We want the bigger, the better, the exciting. We desire extraordinary gadgets, extraordinary kids, extraordinary lives. To feel validated as a person, we will not settle for the ordinary. I think that's a true statement, don't you? I mean, that's kind of where we live. And the truth is, sometimes that's us. You know? Our approach to church is not much different, he says. In a world that values novelty, innovation, and relevance, the expectation is for the pastor to appear hip. Sorry. <laughs> worship to feel amazing. And teaching to be useful for our most recent news feed or felt needs. So, in case you're wondering, I'm not going to preach about the balloon today, okay? We don't want ordinary ministers of ordinary churches, but we want bigger-than-life celebrities who lead transformational moments that are in a rush to make a radical impact on our lives. All these catchphrases and things that you hear or look at if you read much about the modern church. He says, we want churches that are worthy of our personal quest for the spectacular. We want churches that are worthy of us. Have you ever thought about how selfish that is? Hey, I'm going to come on Sunday. You better entertain me. And you better give me something that's going to pep me up and send me out of here so I can make it till next time. Man, we, we, we sort of moved the focus of what worship is about. It's not about us, by the way. So in this age, why bother having a church or planning a church that's ordinary? Why go to a church that does the same things week in and week out? I remember going to church conferences when I was younger, hearing things like, every Sunday ought to be like Super Bowl Sunday for the church. You ever heard that? Which is coming up. Is that this week or next week? The Super Bowl is coming up, and I would hear things like this. It should be Super Sunday. Exciting, spectacular, thrilling. On the edge of your seat, emotional rides, you know? All these things. It's been brought to us via revivalism, right? The awakenings. The first great awakening, probably a little better than the second one. But these great gatherings, these tent meetings where people are brought to emotional highs and then asked to make decisions based on those highs. And then we've turned the Lord's Day worship into emotional high and a concert and entertainment. A cool hip speaker who provides us with one-liner quotes worthy of Twitter or Facebook, right? God, sometimes you ever find yourself reading those and somebody's trying to sum up something and it's a one-liner and you realize it's miserable and it's theologically awful and you're trying to decide whether you're going to respond to it or not. You know, It's probably better not, usually. Just take another sip of coffee and wait a minute. 
But we've tried so desperately to reduce the entire Christian faith to a one-line quip. But you know what I've decided? I like boring church. I really do. I like, and, and by boring, I mean routine and ordinary. I think that's of God. I think there's a reason God said, here's how you do church, and don't deviate from this. Why? Because if you deviate, you're going to start putting your stuff in there that you think would be better. Don't bring strange fire to the Lord. Worship the way He's called you to worship. And He's given us a book to go by. I laugh all the time when we're talking about new babies getting here and uh, seeing little Nora today. And um, we always say, hey, um, one of the best things to ever do to make you... Uh, love your parents a little more and have a little more respect for them and not be so harsh to them is to have a baby yourself. And you'll realize they don't come with little books to say, here's what to do every day and every morning, every night. You just figure it out, right, as you go. And you mess up sometimes. Sometimes you do well. And if your kids turn out anything other than a disaster, hey, praise the Lord, right? Because you're just doing the best you can. And it causes you to stop and go, man, that's a wonder my parents, how did they make it? How did they do this? They did the same way. Well, here, when it comes to church, you know, God didn't just throw us out here and say, now get together and do some stuff. He gave us what to do. And I love ordinary and routine. Because I want people to know that God is a God of the mundane and the routine and the ordinary. Because you know where we live most of the time? Right there. We don't live on emotional highs and on the edge of seed excitement. I mean, if you, if you narrowed your day down, how much edge of the seat excitement is there compared to, I just want to go to bed. I want to take a nap. I mean, that's where we live most of the time. And what we need to see is that that's where God is too. And I think the reason that the ordinary means of grace are ordinary and routine is because it just promotes a steady idea of a steady God who is involved with us in every single little aspect of our lives. The goal of the church and the purpose which God has given us the church is to make disciples. And the means for doing that is through the word, the water, and the supper. If you think about it, in Acts chapter 2, the church immediately began as it was birthed by the Spirit, the moving, the great pouring out of the Spirit. How did they begin? By preaching the gospel. Then what did they do? They baptized converts. And then what did they do? They met together for the breaking of bread and prayer. And as you continue to read through Acts, you'll find this is pretty much how they planted churches. Preaching, baptizing, breaking bread, and appointing elders in congregations so that they could in turn preach, baptize, and break bread. Just a boring church. But the amazing thing is that worked for nearly 2,000 years and we decided it's just too boring. The routine, we got to get out of this. Find something more exciting. Of course, I know there was a lot of corruption in the church through that 2,000 years. It didn't just happen when America came along. But these things do not appear spectacular to the world. But I believe as believers, the more we are in it and the more we learn, the more we recite these things together and we hear the Bible read together, and we expect God to pour out grace during this, it will become more spectacular in a spiritual, solid way, not an emotional goosebump kind of way. Because goosebumps go away, you know. 
And then you got to go back and deal with reality. In this article, Mr. Brown continues, There's nothing particularly exciting or novel about a ministry of preaching, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. It's the same routine each week. We hear the scriptures proclaim, we come to the table, we sing, we pray, we enjoy fellowship, and then we go home. And when we leave, I hope you know what we're we going to do next week. The same thing. We're just going to do the same thing. I want that kind of regularity. When we left a ministry before and talked about starting a church, this is one of the things I kept uh, saying and believing. I want my kids to really know what church is about, what worship is. I don't want them to be confused about all the peripheral things. How do we do that? Well, we just create a boring church, a routine church. That will never work in the uh, in, on any mission board. They're not going to buy that, probably. But this is this is biblical. We hear the scriptures proclaimed. He says, "We come to the table. We sing. We pray. We go home. There are no halftime shows, no concerts, no celebrity personalities. It's plain, ordinary, and even boring at times." Truth be told, he says, it's as exciting as watching a tree grow, which I thought was funny, but then he said this, and I've never thought about this. But then Jesus said, the coming of the kingdom is like the growing of a tree. Luke chapter 13, verse 18 through 19, Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and grew it, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Have you ever thought about that? It takes a long time to grow a tree big enough for birds to sit on. And Jesus says that's the way the kingdom is. It's not going to happen, boom, boom. It's going to be a slow, steady. I mean, if you can imagine sitting there day after day watching a tree. It's going to be like that. It could be. But it's not for nothing. There's a tree coming. The birds can nest in. That possibly fruit could fall from. So he goes on and says, this is true of the kingdom of God, just like a tree. More often, it does not grow by the world's, what the world considers a mark of success, big buildings, big budgets, big names. Instead, it grows in simple, often small services where the gospel is proclaimed. It grows where believers are baptized into the covenant community, and it grows where repentant sinners come to a holy meal that appears tiny and insignificant but it grows where ordinary members of a congregation love and serve one another. And he concludes by saying, we do not need more movements, more conferences, more celebrities. We don't need the next big thing. What we need are more churches committed to the way disciples have been made since the apostles planted a church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Slow going, unspectacular, ordinary ministry of word and sacrament, baptism and the, and, and the supper where God is raising dead sinners and creating a living communion of saints. I believe probably one of the great things recovered in the Reformation was this idea of ordinary means. We've talked a lot about the Reformation, what was going on during that time where the, the, the Roman Catholic Church had just corrupted so many things and they were, there were so many peripheral trinkets and things to do and all this had been lost. Most of our models of church, though, are impossible to achieve in much of the world. Have you ever thought about that? Somebody said one time, and I don't remember where I was at when I heard it, but I've never forgotten it. 
And he said, if what you're preaching on Sunday couldn't be preached on any tiny little spot anywhere on the planet, then you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's not biblical. So most of our church growth stuff and the things that we teach, what the church should be like, most of what we see on TV, most of our models are impossible to achieve in much of the world. But what Jesus taught in this Great Commission and what we see in Acts, this can be emulated anywhere on the globe. So as we jump into this, and I'll probably only take the next couple of Sundays to talk about baptism once and then the Lord's Supper. Just be reminded of this. This is what God has saved us to. This is where most of us live. You know, I need to know that God is real and that the gospel is powerful in my marriage, in my parenting, at my job, when I'm dealing with somebody that's sick, when I'm doing stuff that nobody else wants to do, when I'm doing stuff I don't want to do. And that's exactly what Christ is doing. He's pouring out this grace upon us, more grace, because that's what we need. We've set these standards of what a good Christian looks like and what a faithful Christian looks like. But, I mean, here, the Bible, I believe, says, uh, you know, most Christians aren't faithful. Jesus is faithful. Come gather with the body and receive grace together and love God and love each other and then go out and trust God to help you to live that way. This commission was given, remember, right after the resurrection. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. If you keep reading, he does. We talked about that on Wednesday night for a couple of weeks, how he's now at the throne of God, sitting in the place of power. But he is the ancient of days. He is that king that Daniel saw. He is the king of glory. And he is in charge, and he will forever be in charge. Because... If you read backwards from here, he was prior to resurrection crucified. Prior to that, he lived a perfect sinless life. Because prior to that, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And our hope and trust is not in what we can do for the next 33 years, but what Christ accomplished in the 33 years that he was here. And that he is still accomplishing on our behalf in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. I urge you to put your faith and trust in Christ. Who can have the supper? Those who put their faith and trust in Christ have been baptized into community of believers in the fellowship and the covenant. <coughs> to anybody else, this would not make sense. Why would you eat flesh and drink blood? That's why many heard that saying when Jesus said it in John chapter 6 and they went away because they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear this? But for us, we realize those physical means. We have a representation of the flesh. We have a representation of the blood. But when Jesus said, the only ones that have a part with me are those who will eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is what he's talking about. We do it spiritually because it represents what has happened to us physically. It really is our sustenance. We can't live without it. And so as we come in a few minutes to partake, if you have followed Christ, you know you belong to him and you've been baptized. You come to the table. You belong there. It's yours. 
Not because of anything you've done, because he's invited you. If he's invited you, nobody can turn you away, okay? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we bless you for your word. It is so wonderfully true. God, the, the thought of these means of grace, the way you pour it out. You didn't just save us and then leave us alone and help hope we figure it out. You save us and you just give us more grace and more grace and more grace. And so, God, when we fail, we thank you that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Because we know we fail and we know we will, but he has never failed. So our faith and hope is in him. As we come to the table, we come because uh, no other reason than he has called us to it. Because he is righteous. And that has been laid to our account, imputed to us. Then we can come sit at the table as an adopted child of God and receive grace and receive sustenance. So we pray you pour it out upon us now as you always do. In Jesus' name, amen.